And Lord, for these next few moments, we want to be focused on your word and what you're telling us to be encouraged and strengthened as we study your word, to grow in faith, and, and Lord, to, to receive your promises that you have for us and to see your greatness as it's reminded to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So to remind you once again that Isaiah 66 chapters, Isaiah has been called, as most of you know, a mini Bible, just as the Bible in your lap uh, has 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. In your Old Testament, it contains 39 books and, uh, from Genesis to Malachi. And, and in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah that we've already looked at, it correlates with what the, the Old Testament is like. In other words, we saw that Isaiah comes on the scene in the year that Uzziah died as uh, he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the, the message came from the Lord who will go for us and Isaiah said, I will. So his ministry starts at that time and Isaiah is bringing a message of warning to God's people because they have been disobedient to God's covenant and that is when the Lord brought them, the children of Israel, to Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with them and saying that if you believe in me and follow after me, then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you as a nation. But if you follow after false gods and get involved in idol worship, it's going to be bad news. And you're going to find yourselves being defeated by your enemies. There's going to be drought. You're going to find yourselves going off into captivity. Well, at this time in their history, we know that the nation had split with the house of Israel up north, the 10 northern tribes. And Isaiah was beginning to bring that message that the Assyrians, the, the world power at that time, is going to come and take you away into captivity, which would happen in 722 BC. And also, he has been given messages that you, the southern kingdom, the house of Judah, that the Babylonians are going to come and take you away captive. Matter of fact, we know that chapter 39 ends with Isaiah telling Hezekiah that the time's going to come, not in your day, but the time's going to come when these Babylonians, the, the envoys had come to visit Hezekiah they were uh, in about 700 BC. They were a small empire at that time, but the time would come in 605 BC that the Babylonians were then the world power, and they would come in in three different waves and take away the house of Judah uh, captive and finally destroy Jerusalem in 586 BC. So the first 39 chapters kind of correlates with the Old Testament, the Old Testament dealing with God's people and the covenant that he made with them and the warnings that were given to them. As you know, the historical books, we read about that, the prophets uh, coming on the scene and warning them. But then as we get to chapter 40, chapters 40 through 66 more correlates with the New Testament because we read a lot about God's incredible mercy and his grace. We read about his tender heart towards his people and these wonderful promises that are given to us. Now, don't think, as I mentioned, that God has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Sometimes Christians, they think, you know, why was God so uptight in the Old Testament um, and, and all of a sudden he's more relaxed in the New Testament? God is immutable. He doesn't change. His word doesn't change. But what we see is his grace in the Old Testament 
but they would break the covenant that he had with them. So as we are on this side of the cross, as we're not under the law, we're not under that Mosaic covenant, we're under what? A new covenant. That's what we went over quite extensively as we went through the book of Hebrews. We're under grace. And you see a lot of that grace that is given there in the uh, chapters 40 through 66, the 27 chapters, that correlates more with the 27 chapters of the New Testament. Now, as we went into chapter 40, chapter 40 here to me is just really an incredible chapter because it talks about the greatness of God. And, and as we see, God is the one that makes straight in the desert a highway uh, for our God. You know, a valley shall be exalted and his glory is going to be revealed. And he is the one that makes straight our paths as we walk with him, uh, as we have come to him and we are his people. And he desires for you to understand this in me always, that his path, his way for us is good. And it isn't always easy. It doesn't mean we won't have difficulties or trials. But the path that he has for you and for me is a path of truth. And it's a path to joy. And it's a path to experience the abundant life that he has for us. And so his glory is revealed as we trust in him and as we walk with him and as we know him and as we live in his ways, and as his love is, is being expressed through our lives, and that's what we're going to see as we go through First John, that John's going to emphasize that, that you and I as believers, that we are to love one another and love our brothers and sisters. And you see, people, they may say, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the glory of God. They can see something of God and his glory being worked out in you. As you are walking with him, as you are standing firm uh, in the ways of the Lord, as you are loving others, that they're going to see the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. So God's word, you know, glory being revealed, his glory is revealed, first of all, as we read in verse 8, at the grass withers, a flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Listen, I want to press this point again because this point is, this truth is being attacked more and more in the church today. There are those that are out there that belong to progressive churches or have that mentality that the Word of God is progressing. And what they are saying is, is that the Word of God needs to catch up with culture and, and meet what culture is saying. And if Jesus was here, then he would change his view and his philosophy on certain things and certain issues. And we need to understand, even as we read on Sunday, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that God's word does not change. God's word will stand forever. Do we understand that? Because there are going to be those who are going to come along and say, well, we need to change God's word, or God's word is progressing, or God's word doesn't, you know, really isn't relevant for us today. God's word does not change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We believe in the inspired word of God, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. If you don't know that verse, write it down. Memorize it, that all scripture is inspired by God. And that word inspired literally means God breathed. It is God breathed from Genesis to Revelation, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all of it is inspired, God-breathed. It is infallible, and it is also immutable. The immutable word of God is, it's not changing. It's never changing. It will stand forever. And 
You know, man's philosophy and man's way will change, right? And, and, you know, the fads that we see and the philosophy of the world today seems like to me just gets more crazy and more confusing than ever before. And it's amazing what people will embrace. And I find great comfort and assurance in knowing that God's word is truth. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's immutable. It doesn't change. And I can stand on his promises. And I know that his ways are good. And I know his word is true for me from Genesis to Revelation. So it's so important that we understand that and get that in our hearts and that we also stand on that and proclaim that. So when that person that you care about and that you pray for is caught up, well, you know, the Bible needs to change or the Bible's progressive, that you can take them to these verses. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, you can take them to Hebrews chapter 3. 13 that declares Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God's glory is revealed. God's greatness is revealed as we continue here. And as we saw in verse 10, let's start in verse 10 of the chapter, that behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And I want us to understand something else that a lot of Christians do not you know, realize that a lot, you know, we, we talk about having eternal life and, and there's nothing that we can do for our salvation. Jesus did it all. Amen. He died on the cross. We come in faith. There's no work that we can do to earn salvation. It's a free gift, as Paul writes in second uh, uh, chapter of Ephesians in verses eight to nine, uh, that uh, we are saved by uh, grace through faith. It's, it's not of ourselves. It's not of works. Uh, it's a free gift given to us, lest anyone should boast. And you see, as we know that we are spiritually dead because we are sinners. And somebody called me and asked me about, you know, how do I become a believer? How do I know that, um, that, uh, that I'm saved? It's give your trust and faith and, and realize you're a sinner and that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again from the grave. And you see, sometimes I think the people that we talk to that are unbelievers or skeptic about Christianity, that one of the things that really is a hindrance to them is how can God judge somebody who is not a believer? How can we say that we as Christians, that, that Jesus is the only way? Well, we don't say it. Jesus does. And here's the uniqueness of Christianity, and that is that Christianity is based on what he did. And all other religions are based on what you have to do. And you see Jesus, knowing that there's a sin problem, that you and I have sinned, that he came to this world, the Son of God, and died for our sins on that cross because of his love for you. And you see, we need to get people to understand the cross, to understand that they need to be forgiven. The greatest need of any man or any woman is to be forgiven of sin. And that's why Jesus came. He loves us. He died for us. And he cried from that cross, it is finished. And now it is available for us who put our faith and trust in him. He validated what he did as he rose from the grave three days later and he sits at the right hand of the Father. That was emphasized in that wonderful epistle, the book of Hebrews. And have people see the cross. No one else died for you and died for your sins. And no one else rose from the grave. And that's what makes Christianity unique and true. You take people to the cross so he is one that we are saved by faith, but also know this, Christian. 
I want to encourage you, live for him. Because all throughout the book of Isaiah, we know that he's coming back. You know, Isaiah talks a lot about the first coming of Jesus. You know, what's amazing about the Dead Sea Scrolls is when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a whole scroll dated 200 years before Jesus came on the scene of the book of Isaiah. You can go to the museum there in Jerusalem. They have it there. And, and that, that scroll of Isaiah, all 66 chapters. And there are people that will come, the higher critics, and they will say, well, the prophecies of Isaiah, you know, Isaiah was written a lot later after the birth of Jesus. No, it wasn't because the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the book of Isaiah that you have in your lap is the same that, as that document found dated 200 B.C., 200 years before Jesus came on the scene. And the prophecies of Isaiah, as he wrote this book, inspired by the Spirit of God 2,700 years ago, speaks about Jesus' first coming. But he also speaks about Jesus' second coming. And we know that the Old Testament speaks of over 100 prophecies, very specific about the coming of Jesus, the Messiah and his first coming, all of them fulfilled to the letter, every dot and tittle. And if we can be confident that the Bible, which shows its uniqueness and how true it is, because we're even going to see here as we can continue that the Lord says that I dare to tell the future. No other book does that. And we know that those prophecies being fulfilled, it wasn't by accident. Uh, it wasn't by just by chance. It was divine revelation given through these prophets as they wrote about coming to Messiah, where he would be born, the, the ministry of, of the Messiah that Isaiah speaks about, his death. It speaks about his resurrection. It's absolutely amazing. And if we can be confident that every single one of those prophecies fulfilled about his first coming was fulfilled to the letter, then we know that his second coming, listen, I have great confidence that it's going to be fulfilled to the letter. Every single one. And there's over 200 prophecies concerning Jesus' second coming. So he's going to come, and it tells us that he's going to come here in verse 10, that he's going to come with a strong hand. He's going to rule over the nations, and his, his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him in his work before him. Listen. I know that a lot of you know this. Live for him. Prioritize him. Because there's rewards to be given to you and to me as we will stand at the beam of reward seat of Jesus Christ. And you see, we're not going to be judged for salvation or our sins. Jesus took the judgment for you and for me. But we are going to be rewarded. And here, this verse is quoted at the very end of the Bible, some of the last words of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 22, he's going to come back, and his reward is with him. And he's going to reward us for what we have done for Christ. That's all that's going to last. And everything in this life, listen, is going to burn up. And it's going to go away, and it's temporary. And that's why I want to encourage you, listen, walk with him, serve him. Live for him. You see, as a Christian, don't just let Jesus be added to your life. Let him be your life. And Jesus told a very important parable, as Dr. Luke in his gospel records for us, 
that as Jesus was getting ready to make that ascent up to Jerusalem where he would die for the sins of the world, that there was a great multitude that was with him. And it tells us in Luke's narrative that the people were expecting him to usher in the kingdom immediately. So he stops and he tells them a parable of the minas. And many of you, you know that parable. He said a nobleman that he went away to a far country to receive a kingdom and he would give each of his servants a mina and he would come back and they were to give an account of what was given to them. And Jesus, as he would hear the account of two of his servants that said that, that uh, invested this mina and, and there was a return, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. For you've been faithful over a few things, I'll make you ruler over many. Come enter into the joy of your Lord. And the one that didn't invest, well, he was rebuked. And we know that Jesus has given us a mina. What's the mina? He's given us the gospel. And I pray for us that we wouldn't be afraid to share that gospel with others. And you might be here today and you might think, well, I'm not very vocal. I'm not one to, you know, always express my faith. But you see, as we just pray and Lord, give me opportunity and help me be sensitive to your leading, you, you can also be a witness of the gospel with the way that you live. Because somebody might say to you, I don't want to hear this Jesus stuff. I don't want to hear this Bible stuff. I don't want to hear about the cross. But as they observe your life, do they see the gospel being worked out in your life? So I pray that as we understand that there's rewards to be given, you've been given a mina, invested, and then there's the parable of the talents, which is similar, but that speaks of gifts and talents and opportunities that we have to invest in the kingdom, invest in the kingdom. The Lord's coming back. And I believe his coming is very soon. And we want to keep our eyes on him. We want to be about the king's business because when he comes back, we're going to give an account to that. And if all of us have opportunity, you might think, well, you know, I really can't do anything. I'm not in that position. You can pray. And Jesus said that if you pray, go to your closet and pray, great is your reward. You, you can pray for people. We can all just invest in giving, in, in serving, whatever the Lord might put on your heart. But I say that, and I'm kind of parking on this a little bit because I believe that today so many Christians are distracted. They're so distracted with getting involved in other things. And there's a lot of pulls on us. And there's, you know, we got the, the responsibilities of life, but there's the cares of life that can pull us away from really prioritizing the Lord in our lives. Live for him. Because we're going to stand before him. And I pray that I hear the words and that you do as well. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And as the book of Jude says in the last few verses, some of my favorite verses in all the Bible, that he who is able to keep you from stumbling will present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. And what a joyous moment that's going to be. And those rewards are going to be for all eternity, the eternal inheritance and rewards that we have. And we're going to rule and reign with him. It's going to be so incredible. And then in verse 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. You see the greatness of our God being spoken of here, his glory being revealed through his word. His glory is going to be revealed in his second coming. But also talking about the tenderness of the Lord. I almost don't even want to comment on verse 11 because it's so wonderful that what is said 
here. Um, he'll feed his flock like a shepherd. We do know that Jesus referred to himself that I am the good shepherd and my sheep hear my voice. We saw on Sunday in Hebrews 13, he's called the great shepherd. And he's also called the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 4. And he is the shepherd, as David recognized, that the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want, right? And he leads me beside the still waters. And he causes me to lie down in green pastures. And maybe you're here tonight and you feel like you've been in some dry pastures, feeding on the dryness of the world, the barrenness of the world. He desires to lead you, the good shepherd. David, he says, he's my shepherd. And he's your shepherd as well. And the good shepherd wants to lead you to green pastures. And he wants to bring comfort to you and refresh you and renew you. He's so good. And, and here he says in this verse, I'll gather the lambs in his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with, with young. Isn't it wonderful? And as we continue in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You see, as, as Isaiah is writing here, our God is so awesome, so powerful, so incredible, the creator who measures the water, you know, as it says here, calculated the dust of the earth, uh, you know, weigh the mountains and the scales. He knows every single water you know, molecule. He, he knows everything. He made it all. You know, the Lord is, he created this world that perfectly, the land mass, the water mass, uh, if it changed just a little bit, we wouldn't have life on this earth like we do now. He's the wonderful creator. And his word's going to stand forever. And then he goes on, who's going to be his counselor? You know, who taught him? Who did he take counsel from? I'm going to say this, that unfortunately there have been times in my life that I have been his counselor. That, Lord, I'm in this situation or I got this problem, I got this challenge. And I begin to give counsel to the Lord. Lord, don't you see me? Don't you know what I'm going through? This is what I think that you need to do. And over the years, unfortunately, there have been times where I, you know, tried to give him knowledge. I, I've tried to, to teach him and show him the way. Don't you understand? You don't understand what I'm going through. He understands me better than I understand. And you see, over time, what I've learned that my prayers, uh, unfortunately, in the past, there have been times where it's been a directive to God. This is what you need to do. This is what, you know, I would do in your case. And this is what needs to happen. And I've learned that rather than my prayers need to be focused on getting direction by the Lord. I can give him my prayers. I can give him my supplications and requests and, and hear my desires. And, and Lord, this is the situation I'm in. I can tell him I don't understand everything that's going on. But then, Lord, you direct me. 
I'm not going to give the direction to you and what you ought to do, because I do know this, that as we're going to read in Isaiah chapter 55, it tells us that God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways, my ways. My ways are higher than your ways. And we may not fully understand why the Lord allows certain things that come into our lives or happen in our lives. But know this, that he understands, that he sees you, that he's the good shepherd that's going to lead you. And he has eternity in perspective. And so we can trust in him and we can rest in what he's doing in our lives. And as we continue in verse 15, behold, the nations are dropped in a bucket and are counted as small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. Verse 17, all nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. What we're learning in this is we are learning the greatness of God. We were told, behold our God, in the beginning of the chapter. And we're told, behold our shepherd. We just got through, as he said, behold his counsel, and now behold the nations which are nothing. And what the Lord is saying in this is that he is in control. And we've talked about this before, especially as God was using the Assyrians to bring judgment on the house of Israel. And then as they went off into captivity, here comes Shennacherib, the king of Assyria, and he surrounds Jerusalem with his troops, and he begins to hurl threats towards the people of Jerusalem locked inside the city gates. And he begins to say to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, you know, why are you telling the people to trust in your God? Who is this God of yours? that you're trusting in, telling the people to pray to. This God of yours, the God of Israel, he's not going to be able to stop us. None of the other gods of the other nations have been able to stop my mighty army. And see, Shennacherib was mocking God. And the answer as Hezekiah went to the Lord in the house of the Lord, and, and he was praying and seeking the Lord, Isaiah comes to him and says, thus says the Lord, this attack is not going to happen. Not even an arrow is going to come into Jerusalem. But God has heard the mocking of Shennacherib towards him. And, and in that, as we read in chapter 38 there of, of Isaiah just a couple weeks ago, that Shennacherib, that I've allowed you to lay waste the cities and take over the nations because I am the one in, in control. I've used it for my purposes, and I know your abode. I know where you live, and you're going to answer to me. Now in that, we see that Shennacherib found out who the true and the living God was because an angel came and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And my glory is going to be revealed. So as I read these, what the Lord is saying that he is in control. That he sits upon the throne and Jesus will come and he will rule and he will rule and reign with a rod of iron as Psalm chapter 2 says. In verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold and the silversmith casts silver chains. Verse 20, whoever is, is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. So as we read this, we see that, uh, that the Lord is saying there's no carved image or 
something made out of metal that's been shaped that can compare it to me. And they were putting their trust in those idols and not in the Lord. And the cry of the Lord and the plea of the Lord to his people was this, I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you this land. I've blessed you in the land. Why are you turning towards those idols? And there's not one example of the Old Testament where those idols were able to help them in their time of need, in their time of difficulty. And they would trust in those idols and how foolish it was. And you go and you, you take a piece of wood and you carve you know, image out of it so it doesn't totter, fall over. You, you, you make uh, something, you fashion it, the gold, the silver, out of metal, but it cannot compare to me. These things are false. Listen, that's obvious for you and for me as they were worshiping idols. But you see, do we have any idols in our lives? And an idol is something that has priority over the Lord. What is it that you turn to in your hour of need, in your time where you're in trouble? What is really the motivation of your life? What is the passion of your life? And there's a lot of things that can come into our lives that end up becoming an idol. And I think it's very important that we, that we take the time that we, in the honesty of our hearts, say, Lord, is there an idol in my life? Is there an idol in my hobbies? Is there an idol in whatever the case may be? Ministry can become an idol. I have to be careful that it doesn't. That, Lord, I want you to be the priority and the passion of my heart and my life in every area of my life. And so here they were turning to those idols that were no help to them whatsoever. And continuing to speak about the greatness of God, we read in verse uh, 21, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Isn't that interesting? Verse 22, 2,700 years ago, the Bible tells us that the earth was round. That the earth was round. Job, which is even an older book, tells us in chapter 26, verse 7, that the, the earth uh, hangs, he hung the earth on nothing. You see, ancient myths and, and beliefs were that the earth was on the back of a tortoise. The Greeks, you know, Atlas holding the earth up on his shoulder. Uh, the, the Egyptians, you know, that it was on in, uh, the back of an elephant. And here Job, the oldest book of the Bible, Back to the time of the patriarchs, maybe even before the patriarchs, here's Job telling us, inspired by God, that God hangs the earth on nothing. It's not on the back of a tortoise, not on a strong man, not on an elephant. And for many, many years, even up until the, you know, 500 years ago, there's many people that thought the earth was flat. And it is told that, you know, Columbus, he was one that read the Bible and read this verse and so he set out to prove that the world was round. What is interesting today is there are those who belong to the flat earth society that there are people today that believe that the world is flat. Serious. Somehow they seem to contact me and want to argue with me and the world's flat or a uh, mom calls me up and says, you know, my son is on a computer. He thinks the world's flat. What do I tell him? And so if you run into any, there's not a whole lot of them, but there are those. And, you know, part of it goes into conspiracy and you can tell them, you know, the world's round. They've taken pictures of the world, and they'll say, well, it's just an illusion, or it's, you know, the image, and, 
you know, the, the moon landing didn't happen. It was all filmed at Area 51 in Nevada. And, and people get into those things. I'm serious. And what they do is they'll try to bring scripture to prove their point where the angels will gather the elect from the four corners of the earth and they'll say, see, the, the world's flat has four corners. And they forget about, you know, God does use poetic language at times. Jesus, Jesus said, how I long to gather you under, you know, to myself as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not come. Jesus is not a big chicken, you know. So there are those, you know, the flat earth society that are out there, and you can show them this verse that the Bible 2,700 years ago, amazing. You know, the Bible isn't a science book. But you see, science confirms what the Bible says. And I pray that you wouldn't be taken away from the truth of what God's word, what God has to say about him being the creator and creating the heavens and the earth in six days. Because there's a lot of that that is going on. Matter of fact, there's a lot that's going on in science and in philosophy that says God isn't real or God didn't create the heavens and the earth or you know, all kinds of evolutionary theories and things like that. Well, I'm going to believe God's word because my God is the creator. And he's smarter than anybody that is out there. The smartest person in the world can't compare to my God. And as you look at it objectively, it doesn't mean that you and I as a Christian have to assassinate our brains. But we can look at good science and creation scientists that are out there. I know it's a subject for another time. But, you know, science will confirm really what the Bible says. And even as you read this, he stretches out the heavens like a curtain. You know, uh, scientists and and those who, you know, are uh, in quantum physics and, and, and those who are cosmologists study the cosmos, they will say that, and a couple guys, I believe, won a, a, a Nobel Peace, you know, uh, science prize for it, for science, Nobel Prize, that the universe is expanding. Well, I could have told them that because that's what it tells us here, <laughs> that the universe expands. Now, they're a lot more complicated than I am about it, but here the Bible says that the universe expands like a curtain. You know, every night I close the curtains in the house and it expands. And the universe you know, that the Bible says 2,700 years ago was expounding. Isn't it amazing? And in verse 23, he brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. The leaders, the judges, oh boy, a new nomination for the Supreme Court justice. All the arguing and the debate we're going to hear about. And judges are important in our land. We pray for godly judges. But what the Lord is saying is that he's the ultimate judge. And he's the one, again, that is our leader that sits on the throne. And scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. And when he will also blow on them, pardon me as I take a drink. And he will also blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me? (laughs) Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them by name. 
by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing, excuse me. You know, he talks about his greatness in creation. We know that he created all the stars and he knows them by name. You know, one of the other theories I was reading about is, um, is that it's kind of physics and philosophy put together, uh, physical reality. And the thought is, is that if something is not observed, is it real? In other words, if it's, is, if it's not observed, then it's not reality. You can Google it. You can read it yourself. Kind of like the tree falls in the forest. You know, did it make a sound or not? You didn't observe it. You didn't hear it. Is it a reality? So kind of philosophy, kind of physics, kind of reality physics and science and all that. There's a problem for those who hold, well, if, if you, you know, don't observe it, it's not real. Here's the problem. God sees everything. He sees everything. And I want to encourage you tonight. Because maybe you're here and you think nobody sees me. And it's like I'm not even real. <clears throat> it's like I don't even exist. That God sees you. And he knows you. And he loves you. He knows your name. You might think nobody knows my name. God knows your name. And he's the good shepherd that desires to draw you to himself and has a great path for you and wants to make your life count. And maybe you're here and you're thinking, nobody cares about me, nobody sees me, God does. And he loves you. And he understands what you're going through. And he says, I'm with you. And I want to be your Lord and I want to be your joy and your satisfaction in life. You're not alone. He sees every moment of your life, and he wants to make your life count. And when Jesus went to that cross, he saw you. Because of you, he went to the cross. And he loves you more than you can ever possibly imagine. So if you haven't given your life to him, will you do that? Well, you know that he sees you and he's calling you to himself here tonight. And if you've had other things that have been a priority in your life, <clears throat> let him truly be the Lord of your life. And say, Lord, those things, those idols, whatever it may be, they're just a distraction. Lord, I don't want you just to be a part of my life. I want you to be my life. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time that we've had together. And Lord, I just thank you for these incredible verses that we went through. And Lord, I do pray. As your word is spoken to our hearts, I pray if there's anybody here that maybe you feel like nobody loves you, nobody cares for you, there's no hope for you, that Jesus went to a cross to prove his love for you. And he sees you right where you're sitting. Because I believe that there perhaps is somebody that is here tonight that you desperately need the gospel. It's the power of God for those who believe. He wants to forgive you and give you eternal life. 
to give you a new beginning, to free you from the bondage that you're in, of the world and sin and perhaps loneliness. He wants to give you a new beginning for you to be born again by the Spirit of God. He is your salvation. There is none other. He alone went to the cross to die for you specifically, for your sins, and he rose again, and the invitation has come to me. I am the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He laid down his life for you. Will you come to him? You're not going to find real life the way it was meant to be lived or fulfillment or satisfaction in the world or trying to, to do it all yourself. It comes by a relationship with God through Jesus Christ who's made it possible for you. Even as we sang, even as Travis was saying, choose to live. And life comes through Jesus. And if that's you, maybe it's somebody listening on live stream. Maybe it's going to be somebody on the radio. Will you pray this prayer? That Jesus, I come. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I confess that I am a sinner. And Lord, I didn't think that you would care about me or know me, but you know my name. And I ask that you would forgive me. And I believe that you rose again and you're speaking to my heart. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart, my life, as my personal Lord and Savior. That I may know you and walk with you. Trust you. I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for your love for me in every way. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And listen, as we're being respectful, I just want to ask if anybody in this sanctuary, I, I can't see who's in the coffee shop or who's listening on live stream, but if you prayed that prayer, will you put your hand up? Anybody at all tonight? <laughs> 